Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rachel Active Podcast. My name is Rachel J. I am your host. I'm also a coach and the founder of Core 30. I'm really excited to welcome my guest to the show today. She is a celebrity trainer, nutrition and lifestyle coach, and she coaches out of the 98 gym in Sydney. She's also a mental health advocate and an internationally published sports model. Welcome to the show, Alexa Towsey. Oh my God. Two bonus points there for actually getting my name right. Oh, really? You know what though? Funny story. I was talking to someone about the whole celebrity trainer thing the other day because I like, I hate that. I never put on anything and my management is always like, you have to put it. It's a draw card. (laughs) But the first time I ever did an interview in Australia and they were like, you know, asking me about being a celebrity trainer and I was like, oh, you know, but I don't, I find it quite weird because I don't really consider myself a celebrity. She goes, Alexa, it means that you train celebrities. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, I'm just going to sit here and eat humble pie. <laughs> <laughs> but welcome to the show. I'm so happy that we can connect and chat. So one of the things that I've read, a quote of yours that you've said before is, there is nothing more rewarding than seeing a woman become empowered in the weights room and then watching how this changes her attitude towards the rest of her life, which you pretty much are a living example of this. And, you know, you've been through quite a lot in your life and your way into health and fitness is quite a unique journey. So can you share a little bit about your story around that and how you got into health and fitness? Good God. Um, how long have you got? <laughs> um, I think for me, like I've, I've done a few posts on this and the fact that I really believe like for me specifically, fitness really has been a lifesaver. And I know that sounds super cliched um, and, you know, super fluffy, I guess, but it really has. You know, I discovered the weights room when I was 15 and it was two things were happening to me at that point in time. One, I was being bullied at school for being too skinny. So believe it or not, I was this skinny little child. My, you know, my arms were tinier than my ankles. My, I had buck teeth. I was really tall and gangly. I could sit on my hair. I was bullied at school because of it. And, um, I was, my nickname at school was actually Alexa and Alexa. So my God, it's going to be pretty mean. So mean. Um, and then add to that, I know it's hectic, but you know, add to that the fact that at home, my mum was also, she'd just been diagnosed with a mental illness. So she was bipolar and there was no awareness or educational resources or support networks around mental illness or suicide. So, or bullying for that matter at that point in time. So I had these two extreme circumstances happening and I didn't know how to handle really either. And it was just purely by chance that I happened to walk past kind of like my local YMCA and I went in, they had an aerobics class on offer. I got shown around. I didn't do the aerobics class, but I found the weights room. And I was really lucky that my first experience at the gym was one that was really, really positive. I met some incredibly inspiring people who were really supportive, who wanted to know all about my background, who wanted to know what my goals and aspirations were, who wanted to know why I'd walked into that gym in the first place. Because I think you might agree, you know, I think when you start training or when you walk into a gym, you're there because of something. We're there because something has set us on that path to try and achieve strength or fitness. And, you know, and that's what happened. And I just had this incredibly empowering experience. And that's something that I want to pay forward. 
Yeah. There's always a reason why people come to a certain movement practice and and often it is because there's something going on in Mm. their life outside of the gym and we don't always get to hear that story. But hearing what you were going through at that time at a young age of 15 – Dealing with, firstly, bullying is, is you know, quite traumatic anyways because you're trying to figure out who you are at that age and being called names like that. How did you deal with that? And then how were you also then dealing with your mum being diagnosed with bipolar disorder? Um, look, with the bullying and stuff, I mean, I that was the, my first experience with it. So I had grown up in military school. My dad, both my parents were actually British military, so that's how they met. My dad was a major in the British Army. My mum was a medic um, specialising in gunshot wounds. So you've got these two people that came together and out of it came me. And then for 10 years, I basically spent travelling through England, Ireland, Germany, going to military school. And all the other kids that you're surrounded with have exactly the same experiences. So you kind of bond over that and no one is really ostracized. So coming to New Zealand, which is where I moved when I was 10, was um, it was just one of those things that I just wasn't familiar with and I didn't really understand why the kids were doing it. But I think one of the things that I definitely know now is being in the military and being part of that community growing up it gave me some incredible qualities that really allowed me to push through it. So, you know, I credit the like my army upbringing for things like resilience and work ethic and honesty and respect and all of those things. Like for me, having someone say negative things to me, it's it's never going to be a fun experience, you know, like it's never, you're never going to, you can't take those things um, in a positive light. But in the same stance, like if you're, you know, I'd sort of learned to take negative experiences at that point and try to channel it into something useful, something positive. And that's what I did. You know, I got bullied for being too skinny. So I went on a mission and I went on a way to find a way to develop strength, both physically and mentally. And that's what I found in the gym. Um, And ironically, it was that situation, you know, the flip side of the coin, that was where I learned the really big connection between what it was like to feel physically strong and then that mental toughness that inevitably gets developed alongside that. And that became my outlet, you know, that development of, you know, physical strength to target the bullying and then the mental strength that allowed me to handle my home life. It was just this incredible outlet that I had, you know, come across and it it would continue to sort of be my lifesaver or be my therapy anytime something hard came up in my life. Yeah. And I think that piece, the mental strength and the physical strength, I think once you've kind of come to some sort of movement practice and gone through that experience, you realize how much that development of your physical strength impacts your mental resilience and your mental strength. It's like when you can push yourself to that next level in the gym or whatever it is that you're doing, you, it's almost like it's an automatic it's it's linked it's so interlinked that when you do when you're able to do that it just naturally translates to your mental strength as well which is obviously you know what happened with you and then you know dealing with what was going on with your mum at home I mean as a young girl that I feel like is such a confronting experience because when I think back to when I was 15 and I didn't have to, you know, deal with something like that, you just kind of focused on doing things that teenagers are concerned about, you know, just hanging out with your friends and doing all that kind of stuff, let alone then uh, having to almost like 
take on responsibility for managing your own emotions. I mean, how was that for you going home and having to also manage that situation with your mum? Look, I, I mean, I look back at it now and I'm very aware that I became the parent yeah. very early on. And I guess, you know, for I've I've now been, you know, I'm used to taking care of myself. I'm used to being independent. I'm used to not having to ask for help and not having anyone to rely on and not having anyone to take care of me because I never got that as a child. Um, And I never got that as a teenager either. I was sort of very much on my own and I'm still very much on my own now. Like one of my hardest things that I find, you know, one of the things I find most challenging is that ability to ask for help, is that ability to rely on other people because I find that I am, I do tend to self, like I I self-isolate myself a lot. Um, And one thing I learned through COVID was that I'm really an extroverted introvert. I really enjoy my own company. So I have to be very careful that I don't just take anything on. Um, But, you know, I did, I kept things very, very separate. Like if you'd have asked the kids at my school if they knew what was going on, none of them would have known. I didn't take them home, but I also didn't speak about my problems at school either. And it's really interesting because when I go and talk about mental health in schools now, you know, one of the things I talk about is the fact that my dad and I also never, ever had a conversation about what was happening at home. So I have no idea what he thought about the situation. Um, And that's something, again, I'm really aware of now because I look at my situation like some people grew up with people that they really wanted to emulate, that they grew up with really big role models. And I grew up mostly with people that I didn't want to be like when I grew up. I didn't want to be an alcoholic like my dad. I didn't want to be a victim to to a mental illness like my mum ended up being. Um, So it's an interesting position to be in. 100% taking on, like you touched on there, taking on that parent role to essentially your parent. You know, normally your parent is, it's, it's assumed that your parent is going to be the one that is there to help you and guide you through life. Whereas in your situation, it was reversed. And, you know, I, I definitely have heard you say, I think in another interview that you kind of wish that you were able to support your mum better because there wasn't a lot of uh, mental health resources around at the time, didn't really know what was going on. Also being a 15-year-old, I mean, who knows how to deal with that stuff, you know, dealing with your own emotions, let alone dealing with somebody else's, um, you know, uh, extreme kind of emotional fluctuations, I suppose. Do you feel like you have more, I guess, a sense of compassion and empathy towards yourself during that time? Oh, it's um, definitely. Like one of the things that I've definitely, that I think I definitely am is, is empathy and compassion. I'm very, I'm very empathetic, um, almost too empathetic. I tend to, I go the opposite way in terms of like if someone behaves really badly, I'm always looking for the positive and being like, well, this happened to them, so this is why they're behaving Whereas it's like, no, you also look at the things that happen to you in your life and are you a dickhead? No. So they probably shouldn't be behaving like that either. So it's interesting. But I will say that, you know, back back then, while there was no awareness or resources or support networks surrounding mental illness, it wouldn't have changed. It definitely wouldn't have changed my mum's diagnosis, but it, it would have absolutely changed, I hope, the way that I handle the situation. And it would have better enabled me to give her the love and the support that she deserved because I just didn't understand it. And in my head, to be like, if I'm completely honest, and it kills me to say this, 
I thought she was really weak. I really struggled to express that I loved her. I really struggled to connect with her. I really struggled to have any empathy because from my perspective, all I was was a 15-year-old girl getting no support at home. No one was coming to her football matches or if they did, you know, my dad was really drunk on the sidelines and yelling at everyone. My mum didn't make any of my horse riding events. She never came to any school events. She never, you know, came to my graduation or came to my speech nights or anything. And in my head, I didn't look at it as she was struggling with something of her own. I looked at it, it was like, well, you're just weak and you should be there. And it took me a long, long, long time, like I would say into my late 20s, until I finally was able to come to terms with it in my own head. And honestly, to this day, the only regret I've ever got and about my life would be that I didn't, that I wasn't able to support my mum at the very end, that she might have died believing that I didn't love her, that she was alone. And it's one of the things that if, if any of my friends or anyone that I know ever comes to me with any sort of family issue or, you know, relationship type crisis where they're at a breaking point and they need to mend a bridge, I'm always like, no one ever regrets being the bigger person. Don't ever feel like you're being weak to be the person that reaches out and says, I love you first or says, I'm sorry first, even if at heart you don't believe that you need to. Like, don't be the person that walks away and then 20 years later has that as the only regret in their life, you know, because that's the one thing that I wish I'd done. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you handled it well and like any any 15-year-old would. I mean, you don't have that understanding. When I hear that story, I just feel that I have a lot of compassion for you having to having to go through that. And, you know, you mentioned that your your dad was an alcoholic as well. So tell me about that, what was going on with all of that, because this is obviously happening at the same time as what was going on with your mum too. I think when I was 17, um, and it would have been two weeks before my university entrance exams, my mum actually tried to take her life and I walked in. So I intervened at that particular moment in time. And oh my God. I kind of like it was it was one of those really surreal moments where I just had no concept that we were at that point. You know, you know, you can know to a certain extent that somebody is having a rough time. You can know that you're sort of struggling with certain aspects of a relationship, but I don't know that anyone really gets that someone might be at that particular point. And I just had no concept of that. So for me, it was just this crazy, wild, surreal experience of like, holy shit, that could have just happened on my watch. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, on the positive side of that, you know, that was, I think there was no other path that I would have taken later on in my life, I don't think, than other than be a mental health advocate because I would never want somebody to experience that and feel like they were all alone because I know what that felt like. Yeah. Um, so that's the positive side of that. But, you know, where I went to the gym and I found this alternative form of therapy and outlet, my dad drank. That was his release, you know, like through trying to care for my mom, he ended up, you know, being an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic from the time I was 16. Right. And he was he started off as a functional alcoholic and then he went to just a plain old messy alcoholic. And then, you know, by the time I was going through uni, he was, you know, missing days at work. He was trying to convince me to take him to the alcohol store when he was, you know, and threatening to go if I wouldn't drive him when he was already drunk. He was, you know, telling me that he didn't love me enough to quit. And that, you know, we'd come, I came to this really awful realization that I was never going to be able to 
fix his addiction. I was, I couldn't love him out of it. I couldn't guilt him out of it. There was absolutely nothing I could do. I was left with two choices. One was to basically accept that my dad wanted to kill himself via drinking. And I could either be there and try and be as much of his daughter as possible to give him some really good years, like last years of his life, or I could walk away and try to do the tough love thing and end up regretting it just like I did with my mom. And I wasn't going to do that. So, you know, I, that's how I've come to, you know, lead the life of sobriety that I have now, because after I went to his funeral, he died of liver cirrhosis as a direct consequence of being an alcoholic. And I went to his funeral, drank his last bottle of whiskey and was like, fuck this, I'm never drinking again. And I remember my partner at the time just rolled his eyes and looked at me and was like, yeah, yeah, like I've never heard that before. Said no one ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I literally, I was living in Hong Kong at the time. I flew back to Hong Kong and I never touched a drop again. And that was, it'll be 13 years this year of sobriety. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations on that because that's a huge, huge feat, I feel. And I mean, I just, I'm just trying to wrap my head around everything that you've been through because it's just so much. So, you know, at that, <laughs> at that time, you've got your, you know, mum dealing with her mental health issues, your dad who's turned to drinking as a coping mechanism. And then, you know, you, Alexa, at 15, 16, 17 years old, having found the gym, but also, you know, by the sounds of it, also gone into drinking as well, obviously, now that you're sober. So that was part of your, um, maybe a connection to your dad, possibly as well, and, and another kind of way to cope as well with what was going on, right? Um, it sounds like the gym and then drinking were these two kind of ways of, of managing those life challenges. So, I mean, to me, when I hear that, it's just such a polarity between the two because on one end, you've got, you know, this fit life in the gym, working hard and, and cultivating your mental and uh, physical strength and then almost in a completely, in the completely opposite direction, uh, this pattern of drinking. So how, what was that experience like living pretty much polar opposite lifestyles at the same time? <laughs> you know, like it, it's, it's almost, how was that for you? I mean, what was that experience like? God, we, we talk about my mum being bipolar. I mean, really, <laughs> I, you know, I really lived a, 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 a duality of life, I guess. But I think the biggest, the biggest word that you said there was connection. And if we look at a lot of, you know, research now or a lot of motivational speakers or a lot of people within the drug and alcohol abuse industry, um, you know, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. So when I look at my life, I found my first sense of connection when I found the gym, but I found my second sense of connection, especially with my peers, when I found alcohol. And that was my way in. So yes, during the weekdays, I was playing sports. I was getting involved in fitness. I was at the gym every day. I was having these conversations with these incredible people. On the weekends, I really wanted to be accepted by my peers so I started drinking and there was always alcohol in the house because of my dad. So I would just get blind drunk. And, you know, I drank my first full hip flask of rum when I was 15. Wow. And I made myself so sick that I could never drink rum again. But not only did it not stop me, I just kept doing it every weekend because for me, and this is really what concerns me now, like even in a place like Australia or even New Zealand as well, is that drinking and binge drinking was and still is considered so freaking normal. Really, like if is. I go out now, people, 
think I'm crazy for being sober. Yeah. But it's completely normal to be absolutely shit-faced for two or three days. And in fact, sometimes it's even applauded. Yeah. Um, and that's really concerning because the one thing that I've learned is that if you're living a really true, genuine life filled with authenticity and you really love who you are and you really love your life and the people who are in it and what you're doing with it, you don't need that duality, you know? Um, so it, it, it was, it was really, really interesting, but I needed, it's really, really sad fact of life that sometimes people need to hit rock bottom to understand that they need to stop. And that's what happened for me. My dad, my dad's death and my dad's journey and watching that and watching how painful that was and how messy that was, I wouldn't want to put anyone else through that again. And I don't want to be that person. So it was another case of me not wanting to be like the person who was raising me. Yeah. You know, like that was a not a role model that I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it kind of it really shaped who I am. I, you know. Would I change anything if I went back? Probably not because I probably wouldn't have picked the paths that I've picked now. Yeah. yeah. I feel like all the, you know, even though we go through challenging times, I think if you can look back and look at those moments as it's just kind of part of your journey and part of your growth, it's made you who you are today. You wouldn't be who you are without those experiences. But it's amazing that you've been able to come to that point of being able to, I guess, alter the direction of your life because like you mentioned, so your dad's passing obviously was a really huge moment in your life where you chose then to become sober and chose to, I guess, negate that lifestyle, the drinking lifestyle and just put yourself solely into health and fitness. So tell me about that moment of making that switch and how that really affected then your journey moving forward because obviously you'd been living this uh, drinking lifestyle for quite a while. You'd already been in health and fitness, but then shifting everything over into that direction. How did that impact your life just as a whole? It was, you know, it was really fucking hard. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie. Like I think, you know, again, you watch the movies and someone trying to be sober is this incredibly romanticized journey where the hero hits rock bottom, finds someone who loves them for all their flaws and all, and all of a sudden finds their way into being sober. In reality, it's a really fucking messy, long, drawn out process of like all over the shop. Mm. It's not like 20 steps forward, you know, it's two steps forward, five steps back. And it took me, you know, a long time to feel comfortable enough with who I was to actually be able to go out and put myself in a situation where I felt that I wasn't going to be made to feel like I had to drink to feel connected. Um, I didn't go out for six months. And when I did go out, I was incredibly confronted by how much people didn't have any concept of personal space. You know, you'd go out and someone is having this massive, trying to have this massive DM with you um, and they're standing right in your face and they're spitting on you. And I'm like, oh my God, I used to have these conversations. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're not on the same wavelength as anybody else who you're out with. So you lose that sense of connection. And for me, you know, for lack of a better term, it was pretty much social suicide overnight. I lost entire groups of friends because they didn't know what to do with me. I was no longer the fun person you wanted at your party having those shots. I was no longer the best friend at the bar buying tequila shots and dancing on the tables. Um, what do you do? Like I was living in Hong Kong at the time and that place is like party central 24-7 and people don't invite you out for a coffee or a juice or to go for a walk in the smog. They invite you out and drink at a bar and 
no one knew what to do with me. And it was also like I'd been in a relationship for a few years by that point, but I'd met my partner in a bar drunk. And it's amazing what we didn't have in common when you took that away, you know, and he's still going out on the weekends. I'm at home in the weekends. He's hung over on Sunday. I'm fresh as a daisy wanting to do stuff. So our worlds just grew apart. And it was like the beginning of the end of my relationship too. And that was the point where I kind of had to sit back and go, am I happy with where I am? And now that I wasn't drinking, I was like, I'm really fucking unhappy. Now what? Yeah. So yeah, it was really confronting. Yeah, I bet. And just just talking about, you know, the shift in relationships, essentially, just having that kind of, I guess, dissipate because of the lack of connection there and also with your friendships and, and things like that. So how did you then move through that transition period? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, those parts of your life, you know, had to kind of give way for what was to come. Um And I think, you know, one of the things that people say is that you are who you surround yourself with. Um, And also similarly, when you make a shift on the inside, your outer circumstances change, which you've obviously experienced that through this particular period of life. So um, what was next for you when that happened? Understanding that you had to create new connections, obviously, for your new lifestyle. What did that lead into for you? Well, for me, I mean, you are you are exactly who you surround yourself with. I am such a true believer in that. Um, and it still amazes me how confrontational it can be for the people around you, decisions that you make about your own life, when they feel like you're kind of indirectly challenging their own lifestyle choices. It's kind of like when you look at, you know, the, the person who was potentially overweight and they lose all the weight and the people who aren't getting those results all of a sudden starting start to challenge their decisions because they're kind of like, well, why am I being left behind on this journey? You know, it can be very confrontational for other people who potentially should be making the same choices as you. Um, For me, I was really lucky, like I said at the beginning, that fitness saved my life. At this point in time, I had actually come across somebody. I decided to try out AA. And it wasn't, you know, like self-care strategies and when you've got big things happening, like, you know, contemplating the meaning of life, you know, it's different for everyone. I tried psychologists. I um, tried different forms of therapy. I went to AA once or twice. I didn't really resonate. But what did happen was I met some like-minded people, one of whom had been sober for four years. And I was like, I was going through a phase where I hadn't drunk for a couple of weeks. I had no outlets. You know, I was still training during the week, but in the weekends, everyone was out on the piss. My boyfriend was like incredibly hungover on the weekends. I had no one to hang out with. I was kind of really isolated. And I was like, I'm so angry and I'm so frustrated. And I I just, what do you do with all of this leftover emotion? Like, how do you channel it? I've got nowhere to go with it. Like, I can't do any more outside of this. Like, and I don't want to go out. So what do I do? And she's like, you need to find a hobby. You need to find something that has a purpose, something greater than yourself. And then you need to apply yourself to that. And I ended up getting into half Ironman. So I joined a triathlon club and I had never, ever swum in open water before. I am absolutely terrified of sharks. I've never swum in Australian waters. I've never competed here. But I decided I was like, fuck it. I'm going to join this club and I'm going to see how far it can take me. I hired a swim coach. I taught. I got taught how to swim. And in the two and a half years that I was becoming sober, I 
ended up qualifying for the half Ironman world champs. So I discovered I was relatively good at it. I got really competitive. It gave me a focus. It gave me something to be proud of. It gave me something to do on the weekend. So I wasn't sitting at home on phone, like with FOMO, but more importantly, it gave me this entirely new sense of connection. It gave me a whole new community and a whole new group of people who absolutely understood what it was that I was trying to do. They'd been on similar journeys themselves and they were willing and able to support me through whatever it was that I'm going through. And I think the more you make decisions like that in your life and the more you find your path that you're meant to be on and the more you have that energy that this is what I'm truly about, you start meeting more and more people who are on the same wavelength as you and the people that weren't start dropping away. And, you know, even now, the friends that I have in my life, not once have they questioned me about my choices. They love Uber Alexa. She's the best designated driver <laughs> around. And, you know, they're at the bar getting me a soft drink or um, a glass of water before I even had to ask for it. And that is like chalk and cheese. Oh, so, yeah. you know, it's incredible what you do and who you meet and where you end up when you start making choices aligned with who you truly are. Yeah. I mean, I I love so many things that you just said there about finding a purpose greater than you to apply yourself to. It shifts your focus away from perhaps what you're leaving behind. But then, like you said, the benefits are surrounding yourself with the people that are more aligned with who you are becoming rather than who you once were, right? And I mean, I know it's difficult as a coach, I know it's difficult for people to make changes and it doesn't really matter what area of life you're talking about. It can be in health and fitness, but it can also be in, you know, relationships or what whatever area. And that moment of making the decision to change is a scary one because I think people do realize that with that change comes consequences and they may not really know exactly what's going to happen, but what's happened in your case is obviously relationships have shifted, your circle has shifted, your focus has shifted. What would you say to people who are wanting to make a change but are fearful of perhaps how their friends or their close circle or, you know, people around them will respond, that fear of perhaps even losing, you know, people that are close to them in their life? Look, I think that, you know, everybody in their lifetime will face adversity and your adversity or what you're going through doesn't define who you are, but it's the decisions that you make in those moments of adversity that will absolutely define who you become. And one of the biggest things when it comes to change, like especially massive change, like we use sobriety as an example. If someone came to me and was like, you know, I really want to lose weight, so I'm thinking I'm going to stop drinking. In my experience, that's not a big enough why. It's not a big enough reason to stop because the consequences aren't dire enough. Hmm. For most people who want to make those big changes, the consequences for not doing it have to really be so great that there's no way to avoid it. Yeah. Um, You know, it's, I remember going to a nutrition conference in New York and Charles Poliquin back in the day, you know, I don't know if you had done any work and sort of what he used to do, but his bedside manner left a lot to be desired in terms of the way he would speak, but he was very astute. And I remember telling him I was a triathlon and him saying to me, his first comment was, what are you running away from? And I was like, wow, okay. And it was the first time that I really sat back and questioned what I was doing and why I was doing what I was doing. And honestly, that moment when you realize that you're fucking unhappy Mm. 
is horrendous. Yeah. But even more so is like you've now acknowledged that you're really unhappy so you can no longer sit in that bubble of unhappiness and that bubble of being comfortable being unhappy and being a victim of whatever's happened up to this point. Yeah. And I think that's why so many people choose not to leave their circumstances. They choose not to get sober. They choose to stay in that toxic relationship or friendship. They choose to stay in that job that they hate because they don't know that what's going to what's on the other side is going to be any better. Yeah. So they have no reference point for that and they understand that it's going to be a really messy process and you know lucky for me is that I've always done everything by myself. So I kind of came to the understanding that I was going to have to do this myself. But at that point, I'd kind of left myself with no choice. I My breaking point came when I was standing in an apartment in Hong Kong by myself. I worked for my partner. We had the same friends. Obviously, he was my boss. Um, I was had no other friends or family in Hong Kong. And I remember standing in this apartment and just breaking down and just being in tears and standing there and going, I don't want to fucking be here anymore. Like, what is the fucking point of this? I am so unhappy. Like, where do I even go from here? Where do I even start? And I don't know what happened in that moment. Like, I actually never, ever considered myself the type of person who would ever get to that point. I've always been positive and looking for the brighter side of life. I never understood that I had the capability of feeling like that. So that that was a shock. But I just remember like standing there for a while and then picking up the phone and ringing this helpline and being like, somebody needs to fit me in today or I'm going to do something stupid. And I saw a psychologist that very afternoon. And while I wouldn't stay with you for a time, we did me talking it out and me confiding in somebody else and me getting it off my chest and actually asking for help gave me a strategy to move forward with. And I think if you, whether, it's, whether it's your best mate, whether it's your sports coach, whether it's, you know, the person who sits at the desk next to you or whether it's your partner, you have to have those people. If you're not comfortable doing it by yourself, you have to have those people around you that will allow you to make those choices and that will support you in them. Because if you don't have those people around you and you're not confident enough in your decision to make that change, you won't do it. Yeah. I I really love what you said there about hitting rock bottom almost to the point of you have to do something to avoid something. It's almost like in kind of coaching circles, we talk about the carrot and the stick, right? So there's something that is leading you, your desire or the stick that you're avoiding. And oftentimes it's more the stick that is going to actually propel you into action. So to acknowledge that moment of unhappiness. And I think, you know, a lot of us get into moments where we're just happily unhappy and because it means you don't have to change. You know, you don't have to do anything if you just are pretty comfortable sitting there. But another point that I think that is really important that you said is to talk to somebody. And I think that's why I know that therapy sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap because it's under their mental health banner. And I don't know, you know, there is a stigma around it. But I mean, I feel that going through COVID, especially uh, having a, a better perspective around you know, getting support for your mental health and whether that's making a change or, or that you just need to talk through some things to understand what's going on for you, um, I think was really important too, having 
that support network around you to make those changes. Such a great point to make as well. So, you know, aside from your half Ironman, which is insane and incredible, (laughs) (laughs) I just can't even wrap my head around it. But you've gone on to do some, you've challenged yourself with other, you know, a variety of different physical challenges. Is there one that has been, that has stood out to you as a highlight um, that has been the most challenging for you? Look, I mean, a couple of things. I I did a corporate charity fight. I'm not going to say I enjoyed the whole process um, <laughs> because I did get my nose and two ribs broken oh in goodness. the process of raising money for a good cause. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was kind of like I've always been a big advocate of anything that scares me, I want to do it. I want to face it. So, you know, I'm scared of sharks. I went and got in a shark cage last weekend. I was scared of public speaking, so I said yes to a first public speaking gig without even knowing what I was going to speak about. And I was like, I'm just going to manage the whole situation later. I'm just going to wing it and see what happens. What's the worst that can happen? And I think I go into kind of like everything with that perspective. Like my whole philosophy is like say yes to everything and then figure out the hows and the whats and the whens and the the whys later on down the track. Yeah. Um, But outside of that, I think... Three years ago now, would it be four? No, almost four years ago now, I was diagnosed with degenerative osteoarthritis in my left hip. So essentially, I was 37 at the time. I was started having pain in my hip. I started getting pain in my hip flexor, and then it shifted to my lower back, and then it went into my inner thigh. And I was doing all the right things. Like I left it for a little while, you know, as we all do, as we're athletes, and you know, it's painful. Suck it up, princess. Yeah. Keep going. Um, you know, you'd understand that yeah. people do this all the time. And it, it's something I'm like, something I don't do now, but you know, I stuck, I, I sort of stuck my head in the sands for a long time. And then when I went to see somebody, um, when his techniques, they were very sort of temporary in terms of reducing the pain when they stopped working altogether, he was like, right, you need to go and get some scans. And when I went to the doctor, no one thought anything was significantly wrong. But he was like, you know what? When you go and get these scans, just go and get an x-ray just to see. You're way too young to have anything wrong with you, but just get them just on the off chance. They're free. So I went along and had these x-rays and turns out that I actually had full-on osteoarthritis to the point where it had rubbed off. I had I was bone on bone and it had actually rubbed off the head of my femur. Oh, my gosh. And so I ended up, oh, my God, in this situation where over the next eight months I got myself to a point where I couldn't actually walk unsupported. So I was on crutches for three to four months. And I ended up going to chat to like five orthopedic surgeons and they were all of the same opinion. They're like, if you actually want to be able to walk again, you're going to go and have to have a full hip replacement, not just a clean out, like a full hip replacement, titanium hip and everything. And I was like, oh my God, like at 37, who expects to no be told one. that? Yeah. So I like, I had a pity party for a couple of days. I sat there and went, what the hell? And then I was like, you know what? I'm an athlete. I can totally do this. I'm going to go in. I'm going to get this operation. I'm going to nail my rehab. I'm going to be able to share my story. I'm going to be able to help other people who potentially might be going through something similar. And at the end of it, I'm going to come out fucking bionic. Um, So I ended up booking in for this hip replacement, went in on August the 12th, 2017 at 8 a.m. in the morning. And at 12 p.m., I woke up in ICU on a breathing tube three of my best mates are like standing over my hospital bed, bawling their eyes out. I can't breathe by myself. Like what the fuck has just happened? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm crying. I'm panicking. 
they'd all been called from different places around Sydney because the hospital wasn't sure whether I died or not. I'd had this massive anaphylactic <sighs> reaction to my antibiotics and surgery. <laughs> and um, I had flatlined and had to be, yeah, flatlined and I had to be resuscitated four times. So it was, I was in ICU for a week. I was on a breathing tube. I was on steroids to help me breathe. Um, and it's it's so bizarre to me because, it, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to do something, do it really well. <laughs> um, but it's, I didn't have, like there was no white light or conversation with Jesus, but what there was was this absolute sense or moment of clarity around the type of person I wanted to be and the type of energy I wanted to bring to the place around me. And the last thing that I'd done, like on the Friday, I'd actually flown to Townsville for living the charity that I speak for mental health on behalf of. And I had done a mental health presentation in a school and the school was military affiliated. And one of the students that I spoke to in the space of a year had lost three people to suicide, her dad, her uncle, and her best mate. And, you know, it was heartbreaking having these conversations. And while I was delivering the chat, I was watching this young girl in the front row and she had like head and hands, bawling her eyes out. I was like, shit, I've really triggered something here. Like I'm going to have to pay attention. And she waited until the end. And she waited until everybody left and she came up to me and she gave me the biggest, like most beautiful hug. And she was like, I just wanted to say thank you because today you saved my life. Oh, I was like, it's amazing. What do you mean? Like all I did was share a few slides, share some of my story. What do you mean I saved your life? And she was like, today was the day I was going to kill myself. But hearing you share your story has made me realize that I want to ask for help. So I'm going to ask for help. And I wanted to say thank you. And I was like, Dear God, <laughs> this is what life is about. And that was the first thing I remember when I woke up in, in ICU. It was like that moment, that conversation. And I was like, I want more of that. And so that's what I've decided to do. And that's kind of like, I guess, what I wish everybody would realize is that you absolutely, you never know what anybody else is going through. But what you absolutely do know is that at any given point in time, in any interaction that you have with anybody, whether it's like a smile as you walk down the street or giving someone a random compliment or giving someone a hug or telling someone they look beautiful, you have the power to make somebody's day, change somebody's life or potentially even save it. And you don't even know it. I mean, what an incredible gift that is to have and never even choose to use it. You know, so that's, that's what I wish everybody would realize that they are so fucking important and at any given moment in time, they literally have the power to save somebody's life. Yeah. It's hard. I just feel that, you know, you being able to share your stories and I think this is just goes to show you the power of storytelling and to be able to share your experiences. You actually don't, you might not necessarily see I mean, you got to see it firsthand because you were in a talk or a workshop, but, you know, there are different ways that you can express how, you know, the experiences that you've had that may impact people that you have no idea uh, how you've positively shaped and impact their lives. The way that I came to you was by reading your story about your story and what you've gone through. And I know that, you know, so many people have been affected by mental health issues, whether it's themselves or whether it's a family member or a friend or someone that they know, that it's not like people are talking about that just in general conversation. It's not something that people maybe necessarily share all the time. And so to have that point, again, coming back to connection, that point of connection where it like, when I hear that, I just think that's just so amazing that you're able to 
dedicate your work really to helping people and, and impacting them in a, in a positive way. Well, look, I mean, I think if we, even if we go back to like, you know, finding a purpose, mm. there is nothing greater than being able to help somebody else. So if you're ever in doubt, like, you know, it's the help is high as a thing. If in doubt, help somebody else because if you're feeling down, the joy that you bring to somebody else will absolutely give you joy back. 100%. I know that for me in my work as well, like as a coach, that's that's what you want to see. You want to see the impact that you have on someone else's life to make it better and and that's why you do what you do. There is no real other reason to do it but but for if you shift the focus to somebody else, it does make it so much more fulfilling and and you then have your purpose. There is a reason for you being here, you know. Um, so I, I think that's just such a, a great point to bring up. So one of the things that I do like to talk to my guests about is rejection and failure because, you know, we all experience it. And, you know, you've gone through so much in your life. Um, what is your greatest failure or rejection and what <laughs> have you learned from it? My greatest failure. I guess it depends what you perceive as failure. If I look back, if we use my charity boxing match as an example, like going into that, my absolute fear, my biggest fear was failure. I did not want to lose and I did not want to lose publicly in front of all my peers. And I felt that there were these huge expectations put on me, not only, you know, by the people around me, but also by myself in terms of how I would perform on that night. And I absolutely lost. You know, I lost on that night. I lost in front of everybody. My worst fear had come through. I had to stand up there while everybody was told that I had lost. <laughs> um, you know, and that was a really difficult moment. But if I look back, fuck, I learned so much about myself that night. And it was really, really interesting because when I got out of the ring and I was like, oh my God, how do I go out there and face all these people when they were expecting to turn up to see me do incredible things in here? And the first thing that one of the guys at my table was like, we're so fucking proud of you because no one, very few people would actually have the courage to stand up in that ring in the first place. And I, it was the first time really that I'd looked at it from the perspective of, you know, yeah, I actually, I said yes to something that was, I was terrified of being like doing badly at. All my fears came true on the night. And now I have to find a way of handling that gracefully. But boy, have I learned a lot about myself in this process. And it really gave me a new perception on what failure is. Like failure could have been like being, well, I'm really scared of losing. So I'm not going to get in the ring in the first place. I'm really scared of not being good at that new job. So I'm not going to take that job. I'm really scared that if I leave my relationship, my next one's not going to be any better or I'm going to be left by my own. Maybe that's how we should be looking at failure is like just the absence of wanting to try something different or wanting better for ourselves. So it gave me a different perspective on that now. And, you know, in terms of rejection, fire out. I get rejected all the times. Like the amount of times when I first came to Australia, I mean, not just, you know, in jobs or anything with guys, like rejection all the time. But you know what? I just sit here and go, it's not my shit, it's their shit. Yeah. At the end of the day, <laughs> like that's how you have to think of it. And, you know, oftentimes it does lead you on to better things. I remember when I first got to Australia, you know, you decide what you what happens when those things happen. When you get rejected or you think you failed or when someone tells you no, you get to choose in that moment what you do with that. You know, when I first came to Australia, they told me I was too aspirational to be in a magazine because other women wouldn't relate to me. What? You know, seven years later, I was like, no, fuck this. I have a message. I have something to say and I'm going to say it. 
you know. So it's, I think if you take on what everybody says is gospel, you start believing it. I think you've got to somewhere along the line find who it is that you are, know who you are, know what you're worth, and fucking ask for it. You know, that's the biggest thing I've learned along my journey. If you really, really want something and you truly believe that you are capable of it and that is your purpose, you will absolutely make it happen. Yeah. I feel like, you know, having that perspective around rejection and failure um, to be able to shift it to something, essentially a opportunity for you to respond in the most positive Mm. way and then go for what you're, you know, wanting to do instead of allowing it to stop you. You know, it's just such a an amazing quality to have and a skill that I feel that we all are cultivating constantly. You know, we all get rejected. We all fail at things. So um, to be able to to do that and take that, I mean, with the boxing match, I mean, as a boxing coach, totally understand like just to get in the <laughs> ring is a freaking win because it's a, it's a completely different thing when you're just hitting pads or whatever, but to actually then put yourself in the line of fire and get punched as well and potentially like you, you broke your nose and whatnot, it's just... To be, able to, to, to be able to do that is just insane. It's amazing. And I, I have so much respect for, for people who do choose to get in the ring. And yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's so incredible. So what is your life philosophy or a governing statement that you live your life by? No one ever regrets being kind. Nice. Always be kind. Yeah. yeah. You never, ever regret being the bigger person. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. You might not know it at the time and it might take a little while to sit in, especially if someone you don't feel that they're deserving of kindness, often they're the people who really need it the most. So in my experience, no one ever regrets being kind. If you live by that, you just can't go wrong. Amazing. I love it. Well, this has been just such an amazing chat. I feel like I've learned so much from <laughs> listening to you. And, I, and honestly, I feel like this this, this is going to take a little while just to even settle in and, and integrate all the lessons that I've learned from you. So thank you again so much for um, chatting with me on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. I feel everybody's going to take away something from this episode. So thank you again. I hope so. <laughs> I think they will. There's definitely plenty in there, plenty of lessons for sure. So guys, you can follow Alexa on Instagram at Action Alexa. Her website is alexatowsey.com. And if you like this episode, please screenshot it and share it to your IG stories. Tag at Action Alexa and at Rage Active. And we'll catch you next time on the Rage Active podcast. Yeah.